Hey, RareCast listeners. Rare in the Square brings together rare disease innovators each year to forge partnerships and advance innovation. The event takes place in conjunction with the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference and the Biotech Showcase. The annual financial conference is held in San Francisco that kick off the new year in biotech. While both of those events have gone virtual in 2021 because of the pandemic, Global Genes is partnering with the Biotech Showcase to create Rare Beyond the Square this year to highlight rare disease progress and innovation, share information, and facilitate partnering and networking among companies, investors, and rare disease communities. Tune into Rare Beyond the Square, January 11th through the 14th, 2021. You can register at globalgenes.org under the Events tab. Thanks. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. In November, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved Iger Biopharmaceuticals, Zokinvi, the first therapy to treat the ultra-rare disorder Progeria, a genetic disease that causes premature aging. The approval of Zokinvi, which began life as a potential cancer therapy known as Lanafarnib, shows the essential role patient organizations can play in driving research and bringing together collaborators to advance the understanding of a condition and develop treatments. We spoke to Leslie Gordon, co-founder and medical director of the Progeria Research Foundation, about the role the organization has played in creating an understanding of Progeria, identifying and advancing a therapy for the condition, and how a windfall from the sale of a priority review voucher from the approval of the therapy will help advance future research. Leslie, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. We're going to talk about Progeria, your efforts to find a treatment for the ultra-rare genetic condition, and the recent approval of a drug that you and the Progeria Research Foundation played a, a critical role in developing. Let's start with Progeria, though. What is the condition? Thank you for asking. Progeria is an ultra-rare pediatric genetic disease. Um, it is fatal. Children die of heart disease at an average age of about 14 and a half years. Um, but they start developing that disease very early in life, and some die earlier, much earlier than that. Some die a little bit later. And how does the condition manifest itself and progress? Yeah, this is something that... Um, that rare diseases sort of suffer from is that people are not familiar with them. My husband and I both went to medical school and neither one of us learned about progeria when we were there. So yeah, thank you for asking about how it manifests because really with a disease that's this rare, its prevalence is of one in 20 million living individuals, meaning there are only about 400 people in the world that have progeria today that are living. Uh, and so it's great to get the word out about this disease because now there's 
obviously something we can do about it. Children with progeria are born looking pretty normal. They are not bad on the growth curve, um, but they soon start to fail. They start to lose weight, they become small, they fall off the growth curve, uh, they start to lose their hair, and other things then ensue. There are skin signs, there are sometimes joint signs, they lose their body fat, become very, very thin, um, and then later on in life, they have other things happen, like this cardiovascular disease, which is an a form of atherosclerosis and uh, an accelerated form of atherosclerosis. And that's the same heart disease that affects millions and millions of Americans and many other people in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. You lost your son, Sam, to the condition. How did Sam come to be diagnosed? Yeah, Sam was diagnosed when he was almost two years old, and it was a struggle. Our pediatrician had never seen this disease. We were going from doctor to doctor. And this is not an uncommon story in the rare disease field where the parents know that there's something going on because they know their child, they know that there's a problem, but the physicians are unable to diagnose or they say, oh, it's gonna be okay, the child will grow out of it. And so finally, um, actually a friend of ours who's in the medical field, who's very, very bright, who had at one point in her career seen a patient, a child with something like progeria, thought that this might be it. And then we sought out some expert medical advice. Um, and there we were, we, we had this diagnosis. You mentioned your, uh, both you and your husband are, are, are physicians. Uh, you weren't familiar with the condition. What, what did the doctor tell you when Sam was diagnosed? Oh my, well, they said, there's nothing you can do. It's a fatal disease. We don't know what causes it. And of course, my husband and I dropped everything as any parents would and tried to find out more about progeria. What could we do? Where was there to go? How could we you know, find out more? What was the research out there? And essentially, there was nothing. There was pretty much no research going on. Very few people uh, doing anything for this disease there was just no organization where we could even find other parents. So we decided to start our own and start the Progeria Research Foundation with the mission to find the cause, treatments, and cure for progeria. And that was right after Sam's diagnosis. So we established that, we co-founded that in 1999, right? Right after Sam was diagnosed, the year after. Yeah, it's not unusual for the folks we talked to in the rare disease world who come upon a diagnosis they had never heard of, all of a sudden they have to steep themselves in medical literature and often find yeah. what you found. But I'm curious, both your husband and, and you both being pediatricians, did that change the dynamic for you in any way? Was there... Uh, what, were, were there more resources? Were you more frustrated by the, the lack of answers? How, how did being a physician shape that experience? Right. It, it, was, it was difficult. I, I don't know if it would be more or less difficult for, for any other parent. I mean, you essentially drop everything and say, what can we do? We were fortunate because we had medical backgrounds. I'm a physician researcher. Um, with an MD and a PhD. So that helps on the basic science side as well. 
My husband was uh, an emergency room pediatrician, but he had public health background. Um, and it so happens that I have a sister who's a lawyer who uh, eventually, you know, we, we sort of banded together and with our colleagues and friends, um, we formed this foundation and Audrey, my sister Audrey served as the executive director on that branch. My husband was key in developing the board of directors and, and I sort of, I'm the medical director. Um, but what I try to think of this as, a, it was a learning experience for all of us. I mean, none of us had been in this, this position before. And like any parents and family members, we sort of kicked and scratched our way through to find the information we needed. What was missing? What did we need to do? And I've seen other parents do that as well. Parents that don't have medical or legal backgrounds. So what I try to tell people is that you can do this. You need help. We certainly needed help too. We need to band together and find people that want to hop on board and help these children, help save these children. And I, I think there's no lack of people in this world that are willing to do that. I think one of the things your foundation was ahead of the curve with, um, for, certainly for a foundation its size, was really in the way it thought about a research agenda. I'm wondering if you talk a little about that. How did you go about constructing yeah. a research agenda? Yeah, this is an important and very important question because when you don't have the building blocks to support research or to support progress, I mean, that's really what you've got to work on, the non-glamorous things. What we first did is we said, okay, what is it that's not out there that people need? What do scientists need? What do clinicians need in order to help these children? And so we talked to them and they didn't have cells and tissues to work with in order to um, do their research. So we developed, we started a cell and tissue bank for progeria. And I cannot tell you how key that has been over time. We give cells and tissues out to researchers throughout the world so that they can do their projects and ask their important questions to try to help understand progeria at the bench side. That was a key program. We also started um, something really important, which is an international patient registry. And that's turned out to be key in so many ways, but a patient registry that helps us to understand who's out there, what, who have we found, um, how do we keep in touch with them for so many different reasons, not only for contributions to these things like the cell and tissue bank, but also when we need to get the word out to them about uh, new events in the field. Is there a clinical trial, for example, that is going on? And just communication is so key. That's a major program. It sort of all starts with the children and their families. Um, we also have a robust, we developed a, what's called a medical research committee with people willing to volunteer their time to look at grant proposals, and we fund grants. And these are grants that are meant to sort of bring people into this field and get them jump started into saying, yes, this I'm a progeria researcher. And along with the cell and tissue bank and giving them the tools, um, this sort of has started a whole field of progeria. This started a whole field of progeria research that didn't exist before. And when we first started the organization, there were maybe one or two case reports published each year on progeria or less, some years nothing. 
And now there's this really rich and robust field of research where um, there are, you know, a hundred papers in a year and there are not simply case reports. There are things, pieces that really dig into what causes this disease and how can we combat it. At the end of November, the FDA approved the first therapy for progeria. This is a, a drug that actually started out its life uh, at Merck as a potential cancer therapy. How did you come to pursue it as a potential treatment for progeria? Yeah, this stemmed from an amazing moment where we were able to identify the gene mutation um, that was responsible for progeria. So, uh, as I said, when 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 we first discovered and, uh, that Sam had progeria, we didn't really even know that this was a genetic disease. We thought it might be, but there was no cause identified. And we developed, put together um, a research consortium, progeria consortium, of people who um, were after the gene mutation, discovery of the gene mutation for progeria. And in 2002, published in 2003, we, we were collaborating with Francis Collins' lab, and Francis Collins was then the director of the National Human Genome Research Institute. Um, my husband and son and I had approached him, developed a, a relationship, and he was working on progeria with us within this consortium and discovered the gene mutation. We collaborated on this wonderful project that was really the beginning of so many scientific doors opening. And one of them was an understanding of what causes progeria, not only the genetic cause, but what that produces, which is a toxic protein called progerin that we didn't even know existed before. And what about progerin? How can we attack that protein? And so we were able to understand the biology behind progeria, also its association with aging, but even you know, very importantly, this potential connection with a drug called lonifarnib, it's now called Zokinvi, that's its commercial name, and how we could possibly repurpose that drug for progeria. It was developed uh, to attack the proteins that cause certain cancers, and we repurposed that into the field of progeria. Progeria is an ultra rare indication. Merck wasn't interested in pursuing the drug for, for that use. What did this mean for you in terms of engaging a pharmaceutical company to pursue its potential? And what did you have to do to de-risk it for them? <laughs> uh, well, that's a very good question, but I have to give Merck and Sharing Plow and Iger lots of kudos because although this wasn't a program that they had ever envisioned, Sharing Plow to begin with and then Merck uh, and then followed by Iger, they all provided this drug to our clinical trials at no cost. And that is the only reason that we could run these clinical trials. So the Progeria Research Foundation funded the trials uh, and all that sort of goes along with that, which is things like bringing children in from all over the world to Boston Children's Hospital, which is our trial site, um, testing, all sorts of things that go along with that but the medication was provided by these drug companies at no cost. And that was huge because we had no other way of getting our hands on it. We couldn't produce it, they were producing it. 
So it was incredibly generous of them, especially Merck, after Merck decided not to pursue Lana Farnib, Zokinvi, for cancers, they really could have just said, okay, that's it. But they didn't do that. They provided it to us in perpetuity, which is pretty amazing. How did Iger Biopharmaceuticals get involved and what role did the foundation Mm -hmm. play in the development of the drug? Before our first clinical treatment trial, uh, the Progeria Research Foundation funded basic science to ask, might this work? So there were projects out there from wonderful, brilliant researchers preclinically. Um, a mouse model was developed actually by, uh, again, by Francis College's lab. Uh, there were cells to be tested. So, so preclinical basic science was performed. It looked promising. And then we brought this forth to a clinical treatment trial started in 2007. From there, we performed, I think now we're on our fourth clinical treatment trial. Uh, the first trial had monotherapy with the lonifarnib or Zokinvi. And then thereafter, we had other trials that all included either as a monotherapy or a combination promising therapy, all included this, this drug. What we were able to do is within the trials and also a key study um, sort of uh, external to the trials, which I'll tell you about, we were able to test different aspects of how the drug affects the children. And what we found is that um, within the trials, we were able to take a look at some improvements in the cardiovascular system, which we were blown away by because we had no idea if we could affect the heart disease in progeria, but it turns out that this drug is is able to improve the flexibility of the blood vessel. And in doing that, pressure on the heart is decreased and their cardiovascular disease is improved. It also had some effects on bone. It had minor effects on weight, but we were thrilled that it had an effect on the cardiovascular system that looked incredibly good to us. So that was wonderful and wonderful supportive data. Uh, But along with that, we we approached the FDA at one point and the data was, um, they said, sort of not robust enough in order to gain approval. And so we sort of went back to the drawing board. We had, I had been uh, working on a survival, um, a survival study to ask whether the drug was able to increase uh, lifespan in the children. But the clinical trials were open label trials. As you can imagine, a pediatric fatal disease, if you, without any type of treatment, uh, ethically, we wanted to run these trials as open label trials, meaning all the children got the drug. So what we needed to do was to be able to compare the children that got the drug with children throughout the world that didn't get the drug. And so we developed through basically our international progeria registry and associated programs, we developed a large cohort, a large group of children who had not received the the medicine and were able to compare that and their lifespans to the children who did receive the medicine. And we call that an external cohort because the the group that's the control group is outside of the clinical trial. 
And when we did that, we saw that the the drug had a tremendous beneficial effect on uh, for the children, an average of two and a half years of increased lifespan. And what would be an average of 14 and a half years is, is pretty, pretty amazing to us. Um, we wish it was more, we wish it was a lifetime, but this is the first drug that's ever been shown to do anything for progeria. And so we're, we're pretty thrilled about that because we now know that this drug and um, perhaps others, we're sure of it, can push this disease towards health. Where did Iger come in? Iger Biopharmaceuticals was interested in Zokinvi because it had a potential um, for helping a population of people with something called hepatitis delta. And this is an indication that it's, it's not progeria, but they had approached Merck and they got a license to start working on, um, uh, on hepatitis delta using this medicine. And so that's when we were first introduced to the company. And the more involved Iger got with Merck and their hepatitis delta project, eventually Merck um, asked Iger to take over the supply chain. In other words, uh, handing over the production and supply to the trials of the medication. And then as our relationship evolved, we entered in, into a, an agreement uh, for, for Iger, who's a small biopharma company, to, um, to submit for progeria as, um, to the FDA for approval. And that happened in 2018. And then we all started working very, very hard together to gather up all the information necessary for that submission by uh, Iger. What do you think having this therapy will mean to the progeria community? Oh, gosh, I hope it means lots of things. And I think it does. I, this is our, I mean, this is our, our, our mission it was, uh, is, is to cause uh, treatments and cure for progeria. And we have our first approved treatment, uh, which sort of jettisons us into that realm of, yes, this is our first approved treatment and we're on to more. So I think we can, we can be very proud of that. All of the families, all of the children who flew so many miles, millions of miles to become part of the clinical trials, to give of themselves, which is not easy to do. I think everybody, everybody who supported this, which is thousands and thousands of people over time, should feel like, yes, we we can do this, not only with this medicine, but developing uh, more medicines that will treat and eventually cure progeria. There was a priority review voucher granted to Iger that's been sold for $95 million. The Progeria <laughs> Research Foundation will split that amount. What will this mean for advancing progeria research, and what's the plan going forward? I think this will, this will be really a, a great infusion for the Progeria Research Foundation's efforts towards the mission. There are wonderful things that have already been done with Zokinvi, but Zokinvi was repurposed. There was drug development poured into Zokinvi for perhaps 10, maybe even long, 10 or at least 15 years probably, um, before they even got this drug to clinical trials. And the drug was already in clinical trials in children before the Progeria Research Foundation 
was involved. And so all of that development we, was of benefit from repurposing this drug. There are other potential treatments and cure strategies that can be um, developed from an earlier period from an, you know, that are, are not necessarily repurposed drugs. And I think the Progeria Research Foundation can now um, make great efforts to delve into those arenas and say, okay, well, this type of, of, uh, of drug, potential drug is much earlier in development, but we can invest in that science in order to bring promising drugs and drug strategies forward. Leslie Gordon, co-founder and medical director of the Progeria Research Foundation. Leslie, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you very much for having me. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.